0: and welcome to another episode of consumer the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center as always I'm your host Bill Wertz. Uh on this episode 126 on August 31st 2023 as you can hear uh, I am sick uh, I did have great holidays but I am I am sick and my voice is not great which is why there won't be a regular episode today but I did not want to leave you hanging. Uh, which is why I have uh, borrowed an interview from Consumer Choice Radio uh, done by my colleague Yalasowski uh, with Evan Schwartztrauber. He's from the uh, Foundation for American Innovation, and they talked about uh, European tech regulations and their impact. So um, thank you, Yal, for letting me borrow that interview. Um, do follow Consumer Choice Radio and all the podcast platforms and make sure to uh, rate our podcast and uh, be ready for uh, more episodes with me uh, starting uh, next week again. uh, Hopefully, if my voice does recover, which I I assume it will. So uh, take it away.
1: And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. As I mentioned in the last block, uh, we're going to play a little clip here with our... Our friend, and uh, now a friend of the show, uh, Evan Schwarztrauber, he's a senior advisor for tech and telecom policy at the Foundation for American Innovation, and he's the host of the Dynamist podcast, where you'll find uh, this full conversation. We talk a lot about uh, tech policy on both sides of the ocean, uh, both U.S., Canada, and the European Union, and some of the problems with some of the recent rules in the European Union. Let's uh, jump on in.
2: It's been about seven years since the EU you know, implemented the GDPR, that's the General Data Protection Regulation. And this was a real landmark you know, regulation. It dealt with all sorts of aspects of consumer data. I will grossly oversimplify it in summarizing it, uh, just for the benefit of the listeners. It deals with things like data minimization, right? If you're a company that is collecting data for whatever purpose – this rule is designed to say you should only collect the data that, is, that are necessary for that, right? So if you're a music you know, company, you should only collect data on the, the user's music habits or music preferences, right? You shouldn't be collecting data about their political views or something like that. Um, cybersecurity, right? Companies need to take reasonable measures to protect data. Um, you need to kind of document how you're using data so that like if there's a breach or there's a problem, the government can kind of come in and say, okay, what went wrong? you as a consumer should have a right to ask a company, you know, what do you have on me, right? Like, what do you know about me? Um, you should be able to, in some cases, transfer your data. So let's say you have all your photos on Facebook, you want to move them to Google Photos, right? That should be allowed, right? The company should should give you that option. So it all sounds very good in theory. Um, I think, you know, for most people, they're their only interaction with gdpr is when you go to a website and they throw you the cookie notice right i mean everyone listening to this has probably seen those cookie notices a million times right and now they're just so pervasive but um, you're you know based in the eu what is the general assessment that you have of this regulation now 7 years in like what would you say the effects have been
1: well there's been a lot of different impacts on individual consumers uh, when they're logging onto websites as you mentioned and uh, we're all very familiar with what we call the cookie monster. (laughs) Uh, So that is uh, something that does invade our screens. But, you know, this is the requirement that this regulation that is uh, emanated from the European Commission does require of any firm that reaches an EU IP address. So we do see a lot of that. I mean, there are good and bad, right? You can't, Give a blanket statement to say it is bad, it is terrible, I think there are certain aspects and particularly the principles attached to it that are good and important, uh, particularly when it comes to data retention and liability you know we everybody has been in some kind of data leak at least if, if you are an american uh, I'm willing to bet everybody was involved in the transunion Equifax uh, data leak from a couple of years ago, yeah it was I mean, actually a hack from the Chinese military the people yeah. Yeah, that was like essentially a fourth. I think it was like a third of the country or almost half the country. So that kind of stuff happens. And, you know, you have actual liabilities and penalties that are baked into GDPR when that happens. So uh, a good example is British Airways. They had a leak of everyone's passport information and, you know, there were in a normal age where you did not have GDPR, there would be no immediate remedy. It would usually take the courts. It would take some time. The, the lawyers would probably make most of the money. Uh, but with GDPR, there is a process for that. There is a way that you can say, okay, liability lies here with this particular company and how they're uh, trying to protect the data that obviously failed, and here's what should happen. So that is very interesting because if you compare it to the United States, we don't have any kind of National privacy law like that there are some that exist California Virginia and other places and there are efforts to, to make a national law So I think that is something that is very interesting and good You know, it's probably not always carried out in the best way uh, I think that is is probably one of the most vital things another one is on data retention So another thing if you compare it to the US uh, you just Google your own name you can see um, Any kind of data leak that's been out there in the last 20 years people might know your address your phone number uh, you actually have the the right under gdpr in europe uh the so-called right to be forgotten uh, the I, basically the idea that you can write to any data broker or anyone's hosting data online and request that they remove it and if they don't there are penalties that are involved there i think that's something that's very interesting it's about ownership of data and what we actually consent to when we give our name or email because uh, a lot of times we're dealing with data brokers that we actually don't directly get involved with, but they are harvesting our data, they're using it in certain ways. And I think having some protections there, at least a process, is important. Where I think GDPR has gone too far is is that it really has given an upper hand to the larger companies, because GDPR essentially was a bonus to lawyers (laughs) and entire legal departments at many major firms. And the only way that you can survive as a larger company that is dealing with data whether you're an airline or a tech company, is you need to staff an entire department that is just about regulatory compliance when it comes to GDPR. I know this well, at least from the airline industry, from hospitality, Uh, you have to have entire new departments now that just look at how do we retain data? How are we sharing it? What is our database? And perhaps that's a very good incentive. We would hope that there would be better incentives already baked into, you know, not leaking information or having it hacked. But, you know, this is the the kind of process that's been put together. So it's given a a big hand up to many of the larger firms that have the ability and the resources to do that from the get-go. Many other companies, startups don't do that. And oftentimes are, basically, it's like scoff laws during prohibition where there's, there's probably millions of companies in Europe that are operating that are not GDPR compliant and kind of unsure of that. But because they're not big enough, they're not being pursued. So it's this kind of strange system to where the rules apply to all the companies and businesses. The eyes are really on the big data hoarders and the big companies, but everybody would be liable at any moment's notice. It's sort of like the idea that we're breaking, I don't know what, seven or eight federal laws a day in the United States. That is something that could be applied there. And that has reduced a lot of innovation. It has reduced, and we do have studies on that now, it has reduced in uh, mostly investment particularly in the tech stuff, or at least it's hosted elsewhere and just integrated in in Europe, or it's very much under this kind of walled garden principle, where you have a unique experience for a European audience and a unique experience for a US or Canadian audience. So that is a, the kind of geofencing that we're seeing that's evolving more and more with a lot of tech innovations. And I, I think is actually, unfortunately, the future of many of our different online platforms and services as we are going to have much more geofencing and blocking out but uh, again we have tools to route around this and I think that's something very important for consumers to know about
2: yeah let's talk about the kind of macroeconomics of you know the United States versus you know, the European continent it's very common in you know tech policy circles in D.C. and elsewhere in the United States, if you're like kind of center to, you know, free market, right leaning to basically conclude that the reason Europe doesn't have large tech companies like Google, Facebook, et cetera, is because of regulation. Right. It's not that they don't have enough people. Right. They have you know, more people than the United States. It's a attractive market. And, you know, this would be a whole other episode, but at least, you know, the the theory behind the EU as a single market is that it facilitates, you know, the kind of advantages that the United States has by having 350 million people in the same country, right? It's a a market that in theory companies can access holistically so that it can better compete. All these smaller nations can better compete. But the general idea, if you ask like a libertarian in D.C. is they just, they, they strangled their tech sector with regulation. That's why they just don't have these big companies and the, you know, the joke and you have to do it. And of course, pick a European action is accent, but what about Spotify, right? Because you have, of course, Sweden, you know, <laughs> Spotify is headquartered there. So like, yay, success. But you look at other, you know, kind of rankings and, you know, like maybe the biggest company at any given time in Europe is like a food delivery service, right? So it's it's not necessarily super interesting. No, no shots, you know, at DoorDash and Uber Eats. These are obviously innovative platforms, but you know, it's not necessarily the most exciting thing, right? If 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 you're, you know, a European and you're trying to be proud of your tech sector and like the most, you know, revenue you can generate is through food delivery. Is that is it as simple as that, right? That just Europe strangled their tech sector with with regulation and you know, the only way they seem to be innovating is through regulation, right? They they innovate on the regulatory side, not on the actual entrepreneurship side. Or is it more complicated than that?
1: I think there are elements of that. You know, it depends on on the the country that you might be in, and there are individual countries that really have taken great strides to being more open towards innovation. Um, I think towards the, the the Baltic hero of Estonia, a small two million nation country, but it's actually where we, where we got Skype and where we've got a lot more innovations. And I think they're up to like 10 unicorns now, you know, for,
2: for 2 million people. And a unicorn is a tech company with a valuation
1: of at least a billion dollars, correct? Indeed, yes. So they've been able to, to actually strive and there are um, other companies as well in Sweden that have worked out. I, I would say it's not necessarily just the regulation, because again, many of these regulations are fairly new. Um, they've only been in place for, let's say, five, six years, and some of them are, are just coming in. So it's kind of a lagging factor. I would just say that it's just a different approach to risk and you know, the ability to reach that that market. And you, know, you mentioned the single market idea of Europe, uh, which, again, is still fairly new. The idea of the European Union was that you would have a common block where people would have uh, freedom of trade, freedom of travel, um, freedom of exchange. Unfortunately, there still are a lot of walled gardens and it still is very difficult. And I can tell you this just from my own experience, you know, you can't use a particular bank account, even if it's from a European country and one European country. I mean, there's all these tiny rules that have not yet been implemented, but the vision is there. I, I do think it's just this approach to risk taking. And we generally have very deep capital markets in the United States. We have ability to get capital, you know, but the European continent, most people don't have credit cards. Most people don't have, you know, huge credit, credit lines, uh, the ability to go to banks. You know, they've actually been fairly modest in terms of the amount of credit uh, that is that is given out to individuals and businesses. And that means that, you know, there's just less risk. There's less ability to take that capital. That's one thing. And it is true that just culturally, it's a lot more conservative uh, because a lot of times you don't have, you know, grand vision thinkers like you would have in Silicon Valley, or some of these other places, people are usually looking at their local markets. Normally they're constrained by language. So, um, you know, in the Spotify example, they, if you've seen the playlist on Netflix, by the way, it's a great program. Uh, But what they were able to do is, you know, speak to something universal, which is music but most of the online tech platforms have to immediately come out with 25 translations. Uh, They always have like a main language. So there's always these things that will kind of bifurcate and limit the growth potential of many companies. That always has existed, Uh, but it is true that now we are seeing more and more of these questions that will be asked by regulators. And it's not to say that there's next to no capital, because there is plenty of capital uh, a lot of times it's just directed more by government. Taxation tends to be a lot higher. You really have very high tax rates, even with capital gains. So you don't really have the incentive system that we have in the United States, where that if you invest, you your taxes are a bit lower. You know, you're able to actually put things in the stock market. Uh, generally, the amount of people who put money in the stock market is fairly low. Uh, people generally are very dependent on their state pensions, you know, when they get older. So there's, there's a lot of these kind of cultural mixes that I think have, have probably slowed down the innovation that could otherwise happen. But again, there are some trends that are happening um, in Estonia and some of the Baltic countries that, that really show that it, it can be different. It just takes a lot of grit. It does take a lot of entrepreneurship. And I think that spirit has been very alive in the US and uh, has been influencing a lot of people. You know, certainly if we look at Israel, it's very much the same story.
2: Yeah, there's a story in Forbes as I was researching for the show about you know asking the question: Can Europe build world-class tech companies? And there's a quote from uh, I'm going to butcher his name: Risto Rossar. He is the CEO and founder of an insurance software company, and he basically and he said, quote: In the EU, our investment culture is far more conservative, and investments are made in smaller steps. In the US, there's more optimism and a willingness to let founders just go for it. So, end quote. I I think that you know kind of sums up. The, the cultural aspect and uh, not to be a nuanced pro, but that's kind of my vibe on this show. It, it's, it's maybe a combination <laughs> of regulation and culture. And maybe of course the regulation plays a part in shaping the culture, right? If, if there's this idea that if I do something too risky or if I move fast and break things, right? Allah, la Silicon Valley. I've got, you know, the European commission handing down fines and, you know, breaking out my company, then maybe I'm just going to be less uh, willing to take risks. All right. And
1: as I mentioned, we'll have much more with uh, Evan. Again, this is a part of a portion of the Dynamist podcast. We'll put that in the show notes. A great program. Uh, He talks to tech leaders and thinkers every single week. I got some great content over there on that podcast. Be sure to subscribe to that as well. And uh, we want to be sure that we jumpstart that podcast. so You guys can continue listening as well here to Consumer Choice Radio. Stay tuned here on that dial. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay tuned. Yeah, welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. We're going right into it. Part two of our interview with Evan Schwarztraube of the Foundation for American Innovation. Let's uh, take it back to Evan.
2: There's also the issue, of course, of what is the end goal? You know, a lot of critics of competition policy have said, part of the problem is that companies in Europe, just their goal is to get bought out, right? By Google or Apple or Microsoft or whoever, right? That is considered success. So instead of, you know, forcing them to kind of grow to those heights themselves, they're just trying to get a buyout. And, you know, proponents of the VC world would say, that's great, right? That incentivizes innovation without that that knowledge that if I, that if I invent something great and I I innovate and I can make a lot of money, why would I do it in the first place? There's always that tension between, you know, do we want companies to try to grow themselves organically become a giant or is it okay to just say that American companies can, can simply just buy them out. And if, if Europe doesn't have any company other than Spotify with the kind of capital that can, can buy out these companies, maybe, Maybe that's part of what's motivating all this antitrust action in Europe. Yeah, I I think you're
1: you're right on a lot of those elements, and it's not necessarily that regulations are some hunkering dark cloud, you know, that that exists upon every European So We have our own clouds that have nothing to do with regulation,
2: but <laughs> an uh, iron curtain, if you will. Yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> and it, it, it is true. It's just that you know there is a lot of innovation that's happening. I think it really is just you're starting with small markets, you know. So that's it, it's just a different. It's a different approach. You're not able to scale immediately to the level of, you know, let's say a company in California all the way to you know, New York and you're able to reach all these different people. There's still a lot of restrictions. There's a lot of restrictions with, you know, we still have custom fees on certain products, even across the EU. It doesn't matter um, that we have a single market so-called. That vision has not yet been realized. I think once it does happen, um, Europe could be a player and it would be very interesting. But a lot of the stuff now still is very dependent on uh, sort of the American innovation, retooling that American innovation. I can't tell you how many companies I've seen startups in Europe that are essentially just an idea that I've seen somewhere in the U.S. But that works, something that works in a particular, much like the example of Red Bull right you have this energy drink that people are drinking there all the time you bring that to the kind of the global market a great austrian product now the entire world knows red bull and drinks red bull sometimes it's just about taking an innovation and applying it to a different place and it has a different impact
2: yeah now red bull is synonymous with uh, fast cars because of F1 uh, but but I digress so let's talk about AI right it's impossible to do any episode of a tech policy podcast these days without bringing up artificial intelligence Um, We may be seeing kind of a convergence between the EU and US, at least in terms of skepticism and concern. Um, A lot of the rhetoric coming out of folks like, you know, uh, majority, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, kind of similar to what you see in Europe. And My guess is part of the motivation here is that a lot of US lawmakers and regulators are, you know, have some regret about not intervening in, you know, social media sooner. Right. So you've seen this whole debate about the, the effect of social media on teenage mental health, right? And you know, the spread of hate, speech, and misinformation. If you're on the Democratic side and on the Republican side, you know, a lot of fretting about, you know, letting these companies kind of make their own rules about speech and, you know, they're worried about censorship and bias, et cetera. No Generally, though, I think it's safe to say that the US is probably going to be more permissive toward AI than the EU. EU's already jumping in with regulations um, and the U.S. is, you know, we just have a different system, right? We don't have this like commission that can just write rules and impose it on hundreds of millions of people. It takes a lot more, right? It's hard to pass a bill in Congress. You're going to have big companies like Microsoft and Google trying to trying to get their say in the rules and open AI, of course, what is your assessment thus far of how the EU is approaching AI? You've cautioned against premature regulation in this area, but you know, your, your organization works you know, across the pond. You also do some work in the US. Do you have a sense of what the scuttlebutt is in Brussels and elsewhere about how Europe is going to approach AI? And is there concern that you know, they're going to have a repeat of you know, the past 20 years where they basically kind of kill innovation before it can get off the ground?
1: I think what's happened uh, right now in the European Union and and they've you know been working on this for a good while obviously it's come become more prescient and important right now because you have a lot of AI innovation that's happening really before our eyes where the EU has really tried to stake a claim is they've really gone very deep into looking at end products of AI innovation and investment and what the Message has been from Thierry Breton. So he is the European commissioner for the internal market, very powerful fella, a Frenchman with a nice little bespeckled Frenchman who knows a lot of the players. And um, he has said, what's important is about labels. And this is very similar to the targeted advertising approach of, of many of the European regulations and even some in the US that we've seen introduced they wanna be able to inform consumers that something is artificial intelligence or has somehow had AI in the process. Um, so it's much akin to uh, various labels on food, for instance, if there's, you know, your nutrition labels and you know that you've got uh, polys, sapphire, or you've got some other uh, chemical or ingredient, um, consumers should know and there should be a label. Uh, so that's sort of the the first thing that the EU has been pushing right now how exactly that looks is almost impossible to tell. I mean, I use Mid Journey AI all the time, uh, mostly because I'm tired of copyright notices. But you know, we use that all the time, <laughs> and there's no label. You know, there's no algorithm that says this has been generated. It's probably easy to tell. But what would exactly that look like? Does that mean that the metadata of that image everywhere has to say this was generated by AI? Uh, there has to be a post if it's used in a newspaper. There's a lot of questions there that they're attempting to solve, but we don't really have an answer for yet. And what they're trying to do is, is follow a lot on safety. Where the EU is good in talking about AI. There you go, some positive points, is they do focus a lot on how governments will use it. And I think that is something that is important to think about because it's it's not just, you know, bad actors in the tech field. We also have police departments uh, that we know in Europe and the United States that have used different AI companies to track and profile subjects. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different scandals related to that. And the police and a lot of governments have used a lot of these technologies in order to pursue investigations, whether right or not. And I don't think we have the, the right answer. So they at least have what they call a stoplight approach. You, know, you have your green light, your yellow light, and your red light. So there are certain things that are green lit. You know, if you just want to do a couple images, that's great. Yellow light, as soon as you start talking about people's health or personal safety, that is something that will be regulated a bit more. And then red, um, so this has anything to do with kind of political speech. Now, I think that is where there's a lot of room to grow for the European vision, because, again, we just don't have in, in Europe the same... Protection for free speech. There's no First Amendment that exists in in European countries, and there are many situations where speech is criminalized. If uh, you know, we're talking about historical tragedies that people might deny, or or various slurs. You know, a lot of these things actually on the books. There are penalties for it, and people do go to jail for it. So they they want to put out essentially a lot of roadblocks, and you're not going to get any big AI company that comes out of Europe without several meetings and sessions and probably multiple staff who are in constant coordination with regulators from the European Union. And I think right now, there's a lot of emphasis that's being put onto this, but there's going to be a big push to the larger companies who are already in AI, and they're going to own a very early and advantageous position. And I find that very troubling because we should have open rules that do allow competition. And I'm, we're already seeing a little bit of regulatory capture. We don't want that to be the case, and it should remain as open as possible because eventually what Europe is doing is it's attempting to choose the tech winner, and we need to have tech neutrality as much as possible. And I think that's that's a principle that's a bit missing from uh, the European rules right now.
2: Yeah, and you could argue that speech and tech innovation are... <clears throat> Let me start that over because I have a frog in my throat. <clears> throat> You could argue that speech and tech innovation are just completely intertwined because if you look at some of the biggest innovations that have come out over the past 20 years, right, it's social media, right, it's, it's YouTube, it's Facebook. These are, these are platforms for speech and then even, you know, the smaller ones like Signal um, or what used to be small, like WhatsApp. And perhaps, you know, when Europe kind of looks back into its history and says, like, why didn't we have more innovation? part of it might be this, this culture of how they approach speech, you know, it's generally accepted around the world, right. That democratic governments have some form of free speech, but the first amendment truly is unique. Um, you know, we kind of take it for granted in the United States, but, you know, just Google any sort of story of, you know, UK police knocking someone's door down because of a tweet they sent, right? Like it's, it sounds stupid and absurd, but it happens. And I'm glad you brought it up because when it comes to AI, right we're talking about generative ai that is speech right i go into chat gpt i ask a question it spits something out right that is that is speech and the question is it's from a robot right so how is it regulated i think that's going to be a major focus of the eu and it'll be interesting to see whether their culture on speech right it's more risk averse it's more you know censorious at least in my opinion and I'm betraying my bias here Will that deter innovation? And I, you know, there's already been this whole blow up over Elon Musk buying Twitter, right? And a lot of folks have said that the EU and Twitter are basically just, you know, on a collision course. And uh, I want to play a clip from the executive vice president of the European Commission, Margaret Vestager. Is am I saying that right? You're you're my uh you're my pronunciation. Vestager. Uh, yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I figured uh might be a little weird if I switched into that accent. <laughs> I can't do it nearly as 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 effective as you, given uh, your your trilingualness. But um, yeah, she's she's often you know a, a figure in tech policy because she focuses a lot on antitrust and competition. But um, here was uh, Miss Vestager uh, talking about Twitter uh, being you know bought by Elon Musk. This was some months ago, and kind of this tension and and how you know Elon's vision of this digital town square, where for the most part speech is permitted uh if it's lawful versus kind of the prior regime at twitter which was much more willing to intervene in political debates and hate speech and things like that let's hear what she had to say
3: when it comes to this specific acquisition of twitter there have been recent reports suggesting that the commission is already on a collision course with uh, with twitter is that true but, you know, we are never on a collision course with anyone uh, because we consider ourselves a mountain. Uh, <laughs> How so? <laughs> because, because, you know, a business like Twitter will have to navigate yeah. uh, if they want to prov- uh, provide services uh, in the European market. Uh, I think the European market is a very attractive one. Uh, and uh, I think it's very important uh, that people trust the services that are being delivered. I myself very much appreciated the the, uh, things that Twitter was doing, you know, sort of the nudging. Maybe you should read this article before you pass it on. I think that kind of nudging is most welcome. Uh, Sort of the nudging, if you're reading this tweet about uh, vaccine skepticism, this is where you can go for uh, official uh, information. Uh, All these things making uh, Twitter a much more trustworthy uh, social platform. And uh, and I think it's very sad to see that the people who uh, uh, ventured uh, these uh, innovations, uh, that they seem to have no say. And one of those tools was.
2: And uh, Jane, when you're editing that, if you can just cut out that, cut that clip off when she's done speaking. So while a lot of, you know, free speech advocates and, you know, mostly on the right side of the political aisle in the United States were very excited when Elon Musk bought Twitter because they thought it would be more pro-free speech. I mean, there you have deep concern, right, from a very important European regulator that Twitter would kind of have a more American approach, more First Amendment oriented approach to speech. She's considering that a very bad thing, right? And you could extrapolate from that that there's going to be a lot of problems with the risk-taking and experimentation that AI is going to deliver when it comes to speech, whether it's an image, like on mid-journey, or whether it's a a blog that, you know, ChatGPT is drafting or other services, whether it's research or whatever, these tools are new. There's going to be experimentation. They're going to get things wrong. They're going to say bad things. People have already, you know, in their, in the course of research, intentionally try to get generative AI tools to say bad things, right, to deny the Holocaust, to do horrible things, right, as as just demonstrations.
1: And unfortunately, that's all the time we're going to have today here on Consumer Choice Radio. Listen to that full interview on The Dynamist or check out our podcast, consumerchoiceradio.com. In the meantime, thank you guys for listening on Saga and on Coastal Carolina. We'll be back next week.